Welcome to the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center. And our topic today is the resurrection of Jesus, looking specifically at the empty tomb. And we have two guests today. Um, uh, one guest in studio is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at Dallas Seminary and a Senior Research Professor of New Testament. Welcome. Good morning or good afternoon or whatever time it is <laughs> where a, you're listening. It's afternoon somewhere <laughs> and morning somewhere. That's right. And coming to us via Skype is Dr. Gary Habermas. Dr. Gary Habermas is the Distinguished Research Professor of Apologetics and Philosophy Chair at Liberty University. Uh, thanks for being here with us, Gary. Glad to be here, fellows. Good topic, good group of guys. Yeah, definitely. One of our, our favorite topics to discuss, uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And today we're specifically looking at the evidence for the empty tomb. And the way we want to approach this topic is during Easter time, a lot of Christians get into these conversations at you know, family gatherings and um, places where people start talking to them about the Easter story. And they get hit with a bunch of challenges that um, sometimes catch people off guard. And so our, our hope and our goal is to give people some talking points that they can use um, as they engage their skeptical friends in conversation about Jesus, about the resurrection, and specifically about the empty tomb. And so just to start off, Daryl, I want to ask you to kind of set the, the stage for us in terms of how the empty tomb relates to uh, the whole historical Jesus discussion. Well, obviously, uh, without an empty tomb, there would not have been much preaching in Jerusalem. Uh, because people would have simply said, oh, you think he's raised from the dead? Just go over there and look on, look on in and you'll see a body. Only mm -hmm. when they went to go at the tomb that Jesus was buried in, there was nothing there. So various explanations popped up for why that was. So the empty tomb is, is one of two pieces of material that you see after Jesus is crucified in the Gospels that are designed to communicate that he was raised from the, yet from the dead. The second group are the appearances that, that are undertaken, the various uh, people experienced uh, after he was raised. But the empty tomb is kind of the f starting point and the physical beginning of, uh, of the preaching that Jesus was risen from the dead. And, of course, the story of the women going to the tomb is, is where that... Uh, where that reality kind of pops up in the gospel stories and, and gets us going in terms of, of what, uh, what happened to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so for people who don't believe that the Bible is inspired, who don't look at the Bible as an authority, how do historians who, who don't believe in, in Christianity, um, how would they take a look at data and say, is this historical or not? Well, there are a variety of ways that people take a look at data. They <coughs> sometimes will talk about... Uh, what's called multiple attestation, how many different kinds of witnesses from different source streams um, view this event. So you don't just count Gospels because the argument can be that Mark is feeding into what you see in Matthew and Luke sometimes, but it has to do with what comes from, generally speaking for New Testament scholars, what comes from Mark, what do Luke and Matthew share, that's a source often called Q, but what do Luke and Matthew share in terms of teaching, uh, then there's the unique material in Matthew, the unique material in Luke, uh, the unique material in John, the stuff that Paul supplies. There are a variety of source strands, and the more witnesses you have, uh, the more credibility you have for the point. argument is the deeper this goes across the tradition, the more likely it is to be early and have credibility. So that's called multiple attestation. Some people will emphasize a criterion called a dissimilarity, 
where what Jesus did or what happened to Jesus is not like what Judaism believes and is not like what Christianity believes. That's the strongest form of it. Mm-hmm. A variation of it goes, it's not quite like Judaism. It's not quite like Christianity. And if you look at it, it actually looks like something that moves between the two, mm-hmm. moving from one to the other. That's called the continuum approach and sometimes is labeled double dissimilarity. That's another criterion that gets used. Uh, a third one is called coherence. Uh, anything that gets through those, particularly those first two, and coheres with it can be credible. And then another one that's important is what's called embarrassment. The early church would never create this kind of an event. Um, this is one that does apply theoretically to uh, the empty tomb because your first witnesses are women. We'll probably come back to that in more detail. But that's the criterion of embarrassment. The church would never make up a story where your core witnesses are people who culturally generally wouldn't count as significant witnesses for a significant event and have credibility. So um, so those are, those are some of the criteria. I haven't named them all, but those are some of the key criteria that come up when people are asking, how can I test on a, on a, on a kind of neutral standard mm-hmm. uh, that, uh, that something has credibility? Yeah, well, that's news to some people because I think for a lot of people, they think, well, you either believe the Bible or you don't, mm-hmm. right? And yet it's possible for us to take uh, a look at the data, even with people who aren't Christians, even people who don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, and, and, and assess, is this historical or not? Um, Gary, I want to turn to you now, and I know uh, many years ago you had a journal article come out in the Journal for the Study of the Historical Jesus, and you kind of summarized where the critical discussion uh, was up, uh, up until that point. Um, on the empty tomb, where where was critical scholarship at that point in time, and where has it um, moved now, if it's changed at all? Well, the well, let, let me back up. When I was in graduate school, uh, tech decades ago, um, before computers, topics. right? Yeah. I'm sorry. Before computers, right? Before, oh, way before computers. <laughs> it would, computers would be a what's that kind of thing, <laughs> and. Uh, and you could pick some topics that are apropos to our topic today. I mean, the empty tomb would be one of them, but you could say, was Jesus a miracle worker? And on topics like that, when I was in grad school, uh, Rudolf Boltmann hadn't died yet. He died 1976. And this would have been about 1972, 1973. And the New Testament community was still taken by his research. And he was, uh, you know, probably the most significant light on the horizon then. And if you said something like you believe Jesus was a miracle worker, or you said you believed in the empty tomb, your classmates might judge you to be either evangelical or a conservative Catholic. But it was certainly a minority view. Today, most scholars believe in some sense Jesus is a, a, a healer and an exorcist in some sense. And... Uh, and the majority believe in an empty tomb. Mm. So as I tried to say in that article, I tried to uh, talk about trends from 1975 to the present. And the empty tomb was one of them that's been on a fairly upward rise from that time. And today, most scholars believe in the empty tomb from what I've been able to tell on a, on a head count from 1975 to date, uh, French, German, and, and uh, English sources, about 75% of New Testament scholars accept the empty tomb, way more than I w- when I was in grad school. And uh, 
as Daryl just said, by far the main reason that critics give for the historicity of the empty tomb is the testimony of the women. And for a lot of the people who may be listening or watching this, they might think, well, okay, there's some collusion here. These fellows are just agreeing to tell the story this way. But we have to think about how the Gospels were written. How far around the Mediterranean would you have to look to find the next writer and so on? And and when these writers sat down and wrote the account, what's the likelihood that all four of them would have begun by saying the women came to the tomb? And, and if we backed up a little bit, it's not just that the women came to the tomb. They're practically the only ones present at the cross. They're practically the only ones present at the burial, with the exception of two very little-known uh, disciples, Joseph and, and uh, Nicodemus. They're the first ones to come to the empty tomb, and they're the first ones to see the appearances. So in the women, we have a uniting of both the, the two characteristics that uh, Daryl mentioned, both the empty tomb and the appearances. All this with women. Now, when you think about where the Gospels were written, you think about uh, different parts. I mean, for example, the tradition that John was written to Ephesus, that if, if you stretch these Gospels out around that area, why do they all tell the story this way? And why do they put a weak foot forward? Why do they put a forward? Now, it's not true, like a lot of people report. It's not true that women could not testify in the court of law. They could. But there was pretty much an inverse relation between how important the fact was and whether they would bring women to testify. Yeah, there were certain that topics. Would, that, that would they have could... a lot to do with whether there were men present. Pardon? There, there are certain topics on which they were allowed to testify, but in a lot of ways they were viewed very much as second-class witnesses. They were. So, mm -hmm. so you're definitely not putting your best foot forward. So why do four writers in four different geographical areas over uh, you know, a slightly spread out period of time and why do they all tell the story the same way when, by telling the story that way, you are, well, use Daryl's words, so you're doing a secondhand evidential presentation of the story. Why do it that way? And, Real and, simple answer. And because the way, it happened. The, and exactly. And the way I like to tell this is, imagine you're the disciples in the period between Jesus' death and the preaching of the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And you've got a dead Messiah, and you're having a meeting because remember that the liberal approach to this is to say, well, they made it up. So so you're in the meeting and you're saying and it's your PR group and they're saying, how are we going to keep hope alive? We got a dead Messiah. How are we going to keep hope alive? And so someone raises their hand and says, oh, I got a brilliant idea. Let's ask this view that is a minority view in the culture at large, resurrection, physical resurrection. Not everyone believes it. In fact, a lot of people don't. They think either you're when you're dead, you're quite dead, and that's the end of the story, or they think maybe your soul is immortal, but they don't think about a physical resurrection. Mm -hmm. Pharisees believe that, and maybe a few others, but not very many other people. So I got an unpopular idea, and the way I'm going to sell this idea is I'm going to send out to be my top witnesses people who culturally, generally speaking, don't count as significant witnesses. And everyone goes, oh, that's a great PR idea. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's sign up on that one, and let's all agree that's what we're going to do, and that's what we're going to say. Right. And it, 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 it stretches credibility. The mm -hmm. women are in the story because they were in the story. There was no mm -hmm. way to, there was no real way to kick them out. And so, um, and tell your story. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
So that's what I think we see in the Gospels. And I think it's, ha- it's hard for people to remember, particularly people who aren't used to reading stuff where the idea is the Gospel writers, you know, made up this material to realize that if you say they were able to make it up, all your options are on the table. You could have had appearances to the apostles. You could have had appearances to other groups. One of the points I like to make is I find it fascinating that even though there's testimony that Jesus appeared to Peter and Jesus appeared to James, we don't have a detailed account about what was involved in either of those events. Mm -hmm. If you were making it up from scratch, those would be the first people whose testimony you'd want, I would think. Mm -hmm. So... um, so those are the those are the kinds of realities that historical scholars wrestle with, and so the bulk of them, when they look at those kinds of features, go, "Yep, um, the case for this is, is is very strong." Now that doesn't solve the next question, which is, if I have an empty tomb, how do I explain it? What do is what does it mean to have an empty tomb? Mm-hmm. That's a whole nother conversation. Just like I like to illustrate it with if. I were alive in 30 or 33 A.D., whichever year you think Jesus was crucified, that gets debated among New Testament scholars. And three people were walking by Golgotha on the day that Jesus was crucified. Someone could turn and say, look, um, three men are being crucified, and that placard on one of them says, one of them is Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, and everyone would agree. I can see that. I can touch that. I can feel that. Mm -hmm. But then the next part of that historical event that Christians like to talk about, he died for sin. Okay, now how do I touch, feel, or taste that? You know, that's that's the interpretation of the significance of the event. So I have an empty tomb, and people believe that there's an empty tomb, and then there's the explanation for how the tomb got empty, and that takes on a variety of forms, including some of these more, uh, for lack of a better description, theological explanations for its significance, and that's a whole other level of conversation and a whole other level of debate. Mm-hmm. So, Daryl, you just mentioned the uh, the women, and they wouldn't make it up that way. That's dissimilarity, and that's embarrassment. Well, it's actually period. more dissimilarity. Well, it's dissimilarity to the to the culture at large, um, it, and it's, but it's more embarrassment. It okay. really is the criteria of embarrassment that is being appealed to there. Okay. And so, and by the way, the the story that Daryl just told. Picture that happening in four different places around the Mediterranean, because the earlier account, Daryl made a, a really good point. When you're counting sources, you just don't mm-hmm. say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's four. Mm-hmm. You don't count that way. By the way, this is an aside, but as Daryl knows, the gospel to the Hebrews does narrate the uh, story very briefly of Jesus' appearance to his brother. And it's very similar to his breaking bread with the two men on the way to Emmaus. It's a very similar account, and it's not that old a gospel. Um, but at any rate, uh, so picture that happening four times, and four times they bring up, hey, we can see the women are the the uh, witnesses, and everybody four times says, wow, that's the best option I've heard. <laughs> and all four of them sit down to do this poor option. And, and let me say one more thing. In, in Luke and John, we have the story that in Luke, only Peter's mentioned, but later in that uh, chapter, it says certain of us went. So there's plural, more than one. And in John, there's there's Peter and John, and they go to the tomb. Now, if you really wanted to be crafty, you could be telling the truth and say, Peter and John were the first two witnesses, and they went to the tomb and found the tomb empty. If you wanted to, you could start the story with the men a couple of hours later. 
But no, they stuck to the story in four different places, four to four, stuck with the women because they were primary even before Peter and John went. So I think this whole story is amazing because they all did the women at different locations and they could have told the truth and gone with the men. But they didn't. They told the story with the women. I, I, I think those accounts are just amazing. Yeah, and then there's another piece to this, and that is the, what happens when the women report that the tomb is empty, uh, which you get in, in Luke. And when that happens, what you get is the reaction uh, that you expect from your leaders, which is, oh, we're so glad you told us about the empty tomb. We're, we're rejoicing. No, 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 that's not how they respond. The story says... They tell them, and they thought it was a fairy tale, basically, mm-hmm. that it was an empty fable. Actually, what they said to them was, you're suffering from post-crucifixion syndrome. That's a, <laughs> that's a PCS. That's a disease that you get over when grief overwhelms you because someone close to you has been crucified. And, 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 you know, and they didn't believe it. Now, to, to John and Peter's credit, as, as uh, John's gospel notes, uh, they, they, they are— um, bothered enough by this report to check it out. You know, they don't hang around to give the women a hard time. Uh, but the bulk of the response is, no, 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 this can't be. And my point here is, again, this is another big example of criterion of embarrassment. You're commending your leaders by how you tell your story. And so you're going to create a story that has your leaders um, basically, uh, basically looking like buffoons in terms of the hope of the Christian gospel mm-hmm. and and belittling these women who are testifying to something that really happened. You know, most stories that you get like this, when, the, when you get to the point where the hero does the miraculous, everyone goes, you know, hallelujah, end of story. That's not what you get here. Mm-hmm. And so that's another dimension that adds, I think, to the level of the appearance of credibility and authenticity because they're even critical of their own leaders and how mm-hmm. they initially responded to the report of the empty tomb, which, interestingly enough, ironically, tells you how women's testimony was viewed in the culture. Mm-hmm. Okay, It wasn't taken seriously. And, 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 you know, they had to be convinced by other means before they actually believed it. Mm-hmm. That's embarrassment well, on, on two counts. Uh, when... When Paul reports the uh, pre-Pauline creedal confession in First Corinthians 15, 3 and following, there's no women there. Hmm. Yes. And many commentators think that's because he, not not Paul, but the those who came up with the creed, mm-hmm. which is almost always said to be pre-Pauline, those who came up with the creed were a little shy about making the women uh, the witnesses. and And just like Luke, and just like John, they do start with the men. They start with Peter, mm-hmm. and then they talk about the twelve. So they did skip the women and move on. And that's our earliest source. That pre- I mean, as far as that that predates the gospel. So um, it's amazing all these things. But one thing's for sure: when four to four gospels say it's the women, that's probably because the women were there and did something. And that's and right. I can tell you in the literature, back to that article that you mentioned, the. The uh, critics mentioned the women testimony far more than any other reason to believe the empty tomb. Yeah, because there's, like I said, there's no way you would have made up a story. And, and it, this is hard for people who aren't used to thinking about how skeptics handle the Bible. But there's, 
there's no credible way to think about why women would be put in that initial key place mm-hmm. if you were making up the story from scratch and you were just trying to, like I say, keep hope alive by propagating something that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So the women were in the story because they were in the story. Exactly That's right. right. Well, By the way, the, lar- the larger topic of reliability, mm-hmm. that is another pointer to the gospel writers being accurate and historical and honest that's the way they told the story because the way that that's because it happened that way if they if they wanted to tell the story a different way to put a best foot forward they could have done it but they didn't i think that's a reflection in a broader sense on reliability and how they told their story historically mm-hmm. we're going to come up on a break here in a couple of minutes but real quick gary when you found the 75 percent of scholars that held to the empty tomb is that 25% all worldview issues? What what was the, the issue with those who didn't, did they just think the evidence wasn't good enough or, or what? Uh, you know what? We, we think a lot of times when someone disagrees with us and they're big name scholars, we assume that it has to be evidence. They don't see good evidence. Now, now they, critics do say that once in a while. They'll say, how come there's no empty tomb recorded in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and following? There's a dispute about whether an empty tomb was implied, given a Jewish understanding. And by the way, both John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg both say that that the empty tomb could very well be presupposed in that creed, although Dom goes on and says he thinks it was a Markan construct. But we think they're doing things for reasons of facts, and very, very, very frequently, it's because of emotions and not wanting to support another viewpoint. I mean, I, you know, just look at what happened today with the uh, quote-unquote swamp in D.C. Mm-hmm. and how a political uh, program is going through. That, according to commentators, they were right there three days ago and couldn't pass anything. But today, they have to pass it. What changed facts? Everyone's saying none. No facts changed. Hmm. Why? Because there's a lot of pressure and uh, we got to get something done. So there's a great mm-hmm. example of facts equal the facts, but I feel differently today or someone's pressuring me today. And I really think far from scholars being immune to this kind of stuff, I think we vote with our moods sometimes. Mm-hmm. We don't want the other side, whoever that is, to get the upper hand. And critics don't like to tell the other side that they're right. So I think largely it's non-factual issues that are keeping people from agreeing. But even so, mm-hmm. 75 is way up from when I was in grad school. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased for the change. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. 
Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Um, if you had two arguments that you, you wanted to use um, in, in a short space of time, you'd probably talk about the women and this whole idea that the preaching went out in Jerusalem. Why don't you unpack that a little bit for us, Gary? Well, let me back up and say that of of the facts surrounding the resurrection, of which Gerald started the program and saying the two most important ones are the empty tomb and the appearances, you know, of, of all the ones we could line up, the relevant evidences, there are probably more facts for the empty tomb in favor of the empty tomb from a critical viewpoint, not taking some presupposition of inspiration or something. Um, I have a list of 22 different critical evidences for the empty tomb. But I would say these two are the top two. Number one, we'd, we've done in great detail that why would anybody go with the women in four different locations around the Mediterranean? Why would they take that story? And by the way, critics think at this point, the four gospels, whatever you do with the synoptics, they're not so dependent on Mark at this point. Critics say there's either three or four independent accounts in the four gospels. So again, you have this three or four times they've got to make the same story. I think the next one is is just as important as the women. And that is, if you're going to preach bodily resurrection, which was a radical idea in the ancient world, if you're going to preach bodily resurrection and there's somebody in that grave, do it in Rome, do it in Ephesus, do it in Egypt, mm-hmm. but don't do it in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the last place you can preach that story if the tomb is occupied. And it's it would be so easy to to disprove it. And by the way, critics frequently will say something like, well, according to your own book, they didn't start preaching for 50 days. In 50 days, the body would be messed up biologically and you wouldn't be able to tell who it is. Uh, two comments. Number one, uh, Michael Cohen and I have both interviewed um, uh, scholars, you know, doctors who work with uh, bodies and causes of death, and the body would not be messed up in 50 days in a normal, uh, dry, Middle Eastern spring environment. But number two, here's the key. If you found any body in the tomb, Christians lose. They didn't say Jesus isn't in the tomb. They said nobody is in the tomb. They said mm-hmm. the tomb is empty. If you find a body in the tomb, you lose. The, they could only preach that message if there was no body or no body in the tomb. <laughs> right. And that's how it went. And so it was only on the presupposition. Anybody can take a stroll and find out if there's a body there or not. If nobody else is, is there, uh, you can you can look in. You can check it out. And they couldn't do it. So if you're going to preach bodily resurrection— that tomb better be open. Whether you can identify the corpse or not, it's irrelevant. There ought to be no corpse inside that tomb if your proclamation is not just that Jesus isn't there, but that nobody is there. That's got to be pretty pretty much verifiable. And by the way, all the accounts going back to the early Acts uh, sermon summaries mm-hmm. in Acts 1 through 5, 10, 13, 17, mm-hmm. uh, they agreed that the preaching started in Jerusalem. So again, 
bad place to start if the tomb is not empty. And, and let me add to the argument by saying not only is this evidence that, you know, it'd be a bad place to preach the message, but to have the message be believed. In other words, you've got thousands of people who came to faith in that very city as a result of the preaching. Mm. And uh, that wouldn't have happened. I mean, think about what think about what the Jewish response would be. Oh, you preached an empty tomb. Jesus is raised. No, no, no. Go down. Turn left. Okay. <laughs> take a right. Then take a left. And look in that tomb. You know, that's where he was buried. And they would, of course, know where he was buried because they know who buried him. They know which tomb it was in. And so for that very reason, um, the fact that there are believers who come out of this situation in the midst of this preaching in Jerusalem, in the very place where it happened, means there's got to be an empty tomb. The fact that there's a story circulating that says the body was stolen mm -hmm. tells you there is an empty tomb that you're dealing with, mm -hmm. that, that people are having trouble uh, coping with as the preaching is going on, so much so that there are a variety of suggestions as to why that tomb was actually empty. Mm -hmm. Is that a kind of enemy attestation kind of? That yeah, that that's an example of enemy attestation in the sense of, of, of reporting what it is, what the explanation was coming from the other side, which is conceding the fact that there, there, that the tomb in which Jesus was laid is now empty. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why is there pushback sometimes on Joseph of Arimathea being a part of this story and, and that being his tomb? Well, the, the, you sometimes get Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus challenged as being, uh, one, they're mentioned specifically in the Gospel of uh, John. And, uh, and so there's questions about how multiply attested this is and, and, and so whether such a figure actually existed, that kind of thing. But here's the interesting piece of material behind that. There actually is a tradition in Judaism that says if someone dies as a felon, they cannot be buried in a family tomb. This is why the Jesus tomb story couldn't have been. Um, and so, uh, so what do we have? What we have in the case of Joseph of Arimathea going and asking for the body from Pilate is Jesus being buried in a tomb that's not his family's tomb. Okay, It actually honors... The Mishnaic teaching, granted it's later, but it honors the Mishnaic teaching in Sanhedrin, in the Tractate Sanhedrin, that says um, you do not bury someone who's committed a crime in a family tomb. That's part of the dishonor that they experience as a result of their death. Now, the irony is, of course, that Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus bury Jesus in the tomb that they bury him in in order to give him an honorable burial. Mm -hmm. Uh, in order to show respect for him. But, but they do keep this one part of the Jewish tradition that fits, uh, that fits the background. So that's actually another little detail that, that tells you the story, story works uh, because, because it fits into the cultural backdrop of what happens when someone is, um, is executed as a criminal. They don't get buried in a family tomb. So I see the detail as being actually pointing to the authenticity and actually showing awareness of this this other tradition that we're talking about. Mm. So when John Crossan says something like um, Jesus or the corpses may have been left on the cross and Ehrman comes out and says it was standard procedure to leave him on the cross, are, are they just mistaken there? Well, no, it's standard procedure to leave it on the cross. And what the text is telling you is, is that there was a special request in the case okay. of Jesus, which Pilate honored. So... 
I can have that be standard procedure. Mm. Standard procedure means that happens in most of the cases, gotcha. but it doesn't mean it happens in all the cases. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And so, plus you have the problem yeah. with the Sabbath, um, burying the body before the Sabbath. Yeah, so now that's why they're the rushing to get it done because mm -hmm. they've got to get it done before the right. Sabbath comes. If mm -hmm. the crucifixion were on Monday, you could have left it up there for a while. But the crucifixion is just before the Sabbath, so we have an additional problem. Yeah, we don't want an unclean body up um, uh, in a in a situation of defiling uh, taking place uh, before we get to the Sabbath. So they're that's why they're 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 rushing against the clock, mm -hmm. and uh, and 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 so they. They can't do the work. And what's going on here? They can't do the work of burying the body on the Sabbath. So they've got to get it done before before the Sabbath comes. And they don't want to leave the body hanging there in public, you know, till after the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. By uh, the way, just another aside, Josephus says that even persons who were crucified were given a decent burial, which is a witness. Well, it's a witness to what happened in Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD, but it's also a witness to the respect that Jews had for bodies and those who might complain that the body may not have been put in the tomb because it would have been a dishonorable uh, burial has to deal with uh, Josephus, who specifically says that even crucified persons hmm. were given uh, decent burials. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, sometimes people will push back on the entire notion of, of any of this being historical. I know you've, you've debated some people, Gary, who, who say that this was embellished or it was a myth, it was legendary. Uh, what's the quick go-to with, with that kind of challenge? That someone who says what, that the whole story was brought into the Gospels too late? It could be too late. It could have been embellished or it could have just been made up. Well, okay, but by the way, a couple things. If Mark is the lead gospel, as per Daryl's comments earlier, for those mm -hmm. who think that Mark is the lead gospel of the synoptics, um, Daryl, you, you guys may have heard that one date has already appeared for this Mark and Fragment, hmm. that, and it has been dated to, to uh, 80 to 110 A.D. And some critics have said, well, that would push back the gospel of Mark and I might also note here that entirely apart from dating a fragment of a copy to as early as 80 AD, you've got uh, two critics, two agnostic non-Christians in uh, James Crossley and the late uh, Morris Casey, who both on separate grounds, actually separate from each other and separate from the fragment, date Mark Crossley about 38 to 42 AD. Casey just says about 50. And by the way, Casey dates Matthew 50 to 60. Uh, so if the dates are coming back a little bit for the synoptics here, and Mark in particular, if Mark can be brought back even earlier, because you can't have a fragment of a copy in 80 and, and somewhere else geographically, and the book be written just a very few years before that, five or 10 years before that, um, that's going to say something about the Mark and source being earlier. So that's mm -hmm. one thing I would say. One more thing I would note are the Acts sermon summaries. Uh, again, Acts 1 through 5, 10, 13, 17. Acts 13's Pauline uh, statement there is that Jesus was buried mm -hmm. and his body did not undergo decay, as was the case with David. Sort of like uh, Acts 2, only Peter's doing the preaching in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13. Those are early. 
Uh, Bart Ehrman dates the Acts sermon summaries to to one to two years. He doesn't specify which is which, but uh, he dates them to one to two years after the cross. If the sermon summaries are one to two years after the cross, he specifically thinks that Acts 13 is among the earliest. Now, he's got other theological reasons for admitting that. Um, but if the Acts sermon summaries are within a year or two, and Mark has come back 10 or 20 years, we've got two sets of very early arguments for what's going on with the empty tomb, and, of course, multiple sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me comment on some of this, because this is important. Uh, I've hesitated to use the fragment uh, argument yet because I want to see the evidence about the fragment, which hasn't been put out yet. That, uh, what Gary is reporting is stuff that is has been circulating and has been said, but we haven't seen the data for it yet. So we, so I'm a little hesitant to to make much of that at that point. If it's true, it's interesting. But I want to make another point that I that I think we sometimes miss in conservative circles, and it goes like this. It does not matter what the dates of the Gospels are as much as the quality of the tradition that feeds them. And um, and I think this is an important point because sometimes we get into discussions about are the Gospels written 20 years after? So that's 20 years after the gap if it's in the 50s and, or if, you, if you're talking 38, 40, you're even tighter. You're within a decade. Um, if it's written in the 60s, which is where most people put the synoptic Gospels, uh, that's 30 years after. If it's in the 80s, which is where most non-conservatives will put the Gospels, you're dealing 50 or 60 years after the events that we're talking about. The Gospel John is put, generally speaking, in the 90s. You know, that's 60 years later. Here's the point I like to make. In, the, in what goes into the Gospels, there's a tradition. If that tradition is, has been solidly communicated, it doesn't matter when it's written down, okay? Because the tradition is older than the incorporation of the material in the writing. And so it's actually the quality of the tradition that we get that's important to the gospel authenticity as opposed to the dates of the gospels per se. And, and that's important because if we think about the roots of that tradition in Christian circles, we have to use, in the words of that great, theologian Chris Berman we have to go back 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 to the experience of Paul Mm -hmm. the experience of Paul is and this is something Gary teaches when he's in public and I've played with it uh, and it goes the experience of Paul is within about 18 months to a couple of years of the actual crucifixion the experience of Paul is takes place when he is an opponent of Christianity the experience of Paul takes place because he's heard the apostolic preaching And the experience of Paul takes place so that when he sees the raised Jesus, he automatically and instantly is able to process that message that the apostles were giving me that I was denying must now be seen to be true. Mm -hmm. So so that experience even predates when Paul has the experience. It goes back to the preaching and teaching that he heard that allows him to process that experience. And so we're literally at that point uh, in terms of the core tradition of a resurrection of Jesus mm-hmm. on top of the events themselves with someone who lived in the city where it happened, you know, and there this gap that we often talk about in relationship to when the events happened versus when the Gospels was written all of a sudden has shrunk down to being basically nothing. In fact, when I do this on stage, mm-hmm. I start off and I go from one end of the stage to the other. And by the time I'm done with this explanation, 
I, st- I, I stand right next to where I had marked that the crucifixion happened, and I just take a little hop step mm-hmm. to show to show we're right up against the event now. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. is a this is a very very important part of of the roots of the tradition, mm-hmm. and the roots of that tradition can be shown to go all the way back virtually to the events themselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's worth noting that. The, the pushback is right. often not on the data itself, but it's a pushback on the theological implication of the data of the the empty tomb. And as Jesus mentioned to the to the uh, the Jewish establishment, to the Jewish leadership at his examination, this this had major ramifications. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely, it did. I mean, it, it, you know, there's a there's a core. Uh, there's a core truth that, that, that challenges everybody because it says you're accountable to God. Jesus is raised from the dead. Uh, God has done this. Uh, and the way to interact with what it is that God is doing in the world is to interact with what he's done with Jesus. Gary, I don't know if you have any more feedback you want to put on that uh, on that uh, uh, description of Paul and Paul's experience. But I actually think that's one of the most important evidences for the quality of the core tradition of the church that we possess. Right. No, I agree. I do this timeline lecture that I've done in one form or another 2,000 times now, believe it or not. And <laughs> wow. even when you start with 1 Corinthians, you're only 25 years away. And so I, I move it back. And and the consensus New Testament position now is reported by Richard Bauckham and others. The consensus New Testament position is that Paul received this material uh, about 35 A.D. And if it's if you take a 33 crucifixion it's 38 AD but it's a plus five is the math but you that's when Paul heard it and if he gets the testimony from Peter and James Galatians chapter one they're discussing the gospel if he gets it from Peter and James Peter and James have it before Paul has it in fact Peter and James are reporting their own testimonies that's pre-Pauline and then you have to go back before Peter and James to the actual events themselves and this is where Jimmy Dunn says the creed had to be in existence just months after the cross. So if the cross is in the spring, months is probably going to be before the year's over. So you're you're in maybe the fall of the year at the latest. Uh, I'm thinking about other people. There's a number of New Testament scholars. I can go down the line and mention names, but there's a lot of scholars that say 30 A.D. Larry Hurtado says days after the event. This stuff is is so early. I mean, Jesus Seminar members, when you go back and look, or John Dominic Cross in, in his books will say that there are, by the way, multiple attestation for these sightings. John, uh, Dom Crossan gives three independent sources for the empty tomb, and he doesn't even believe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he's got three independent sources. So the data here are very early. They're from the people who walk by. They're from people who are willing to give their lives because while we can't be sure of most of the martyrdoms of the apostles, we have very good data for James, Peter, and Paul. And some people think we've got a good source for John in the second century. So John comes into the scene in Galatians 2. So when Paul goes back in the late 40s, they're specifically talking about the gospel, Galatians 2, 2. And the other disciples add nothing to Paul's message, meaning they're on the same page. I mean, why do they put the right hand of, why do they give Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship? I, I've never been in a church where we do that for heretics. So <laughs> they must agree with them. In fact, Paul specifically says, they added nothing to me. Mm-hmm. So they agreed with the message of the gospel. This, 
I think maybe the best thing Paul gives us is the testimony of the others. Uh, Bart Ehrman says, he says, Paul spent 15 days with Peter and James. And then he pauses and he says, I'd like to have spent 15 days with Peter and James. <laughs> and then he asks this question. If you don't have an evangelical type presupposition and think that at least a couple of the gospels, you can get back to eyewitnesses. And even those where you aren't sure, they're still eyewitness testimony. If you don't have that presupposition, what's going to be the earliest data we have? And Bart Ehrman adds there, he says, where do we get earlier than this? Where do we get closer to the eyewitness testimony than Paul's talking to these fellows in Jerusalem? To me, that is the tightest connection on the empty tomb appearances report okay let me go one more because because you're talking about the stuff that's been written i'm talking about the experience of paul at the damascus mm -hmm. road so the point that i'm making is he has to have enough christian theology in his head which he didn't believe up to that time to process what it means for jesus to appear to him and what that means and so my point is when jesus appears to him all of a sudden Flash, breaking news, CNN, Paul realizes that stuff that the apostles were teaching and preaching me that I was challenging, all of a sudden I realized they had it right. Mm -hmm. And so, so we're talking about the stuff that predates anything that's written. It may well predate anything that's in a creed, okay, because it, it relates to the moment Paul was opposed to these apostles and preaching was hearing them and reacting to what it was they were saying in the streets of Jerusalem mm -hmm. where that empty tomb resided mm -hmm. that everyone, you know, could go by and point to and say, that's why we're having this discussion. And so we're off and running in terms of what it's mm -hmm. the early church is teaching. And this is two years in after fact, the it's cross. Got, it's got to be pre-creed. Yes. Because mm -hmm. creed takes a little while. It's sort of like a, a musician who says, hey, I got some words to a cool song. Let's get some music. So you sit down and you pick some notes out. Uh, something's going to come before something else. And by the time you get the creed and you proclaim it orally, the data on which the creed are based has to precede it. There has to be something there that you're writing the song about. Exactly right. Philippians 2, Colossians 1. Mm -hmm. Something's got to be there. And that's why that's why even Jesus said on our members call this material pre-Pauline, which, by the way, Mikkel, I'm thinking hmm. you're doing your dissertation on kind of a minimal facts argument for the deity of Christ when people want to say, rarely, but when people want to say Paul invented deity, you should stop and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That message was there before Paul was even converted. So how is this a Pauline invention with Jesus being the simple Galilean farmer who didn't have any idea about his own yeah, deity? Paul is not responsible for his own conversion. Something else was. <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we are just having too much fun here, but we're coming up to the end of our time. Um, when you think about the women, you think about the preaching in Jerusalem, how early this was, how no one would ever make this up. We see just the richness of the evidence that, that God has left for us um, so that we can talk with our skeptical friends, people who don't believe the Bible is the word of God, and say, look, there's data here that's good enough for us to take seriously um, and see what, what God has really done in Jesus. So, Daryl, I want to thank you so much for being a part of the show today. A pleasure. And thank you so much, uh, Gary, for being a part of the show as well. Thank you for the invite. It's been very enjoyable. We'll have to have you back on the show again sometime uh, in the future to continue this discussion. That's right. We don't want to leave it here, do we? No, we'll, <laughs> we'll pick it up again. So uh, we hope you will join right. us once again on the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. <laughs>